type of change and infiltration. And I once met a Lancelot, who I assure you had nothing to do with chivalry. However, all that may be, dear Fleur, went the letter, I think I've found a job for you. The letter went on, very boring. It was a well-wishing friend, and I've forgotten what she looked like. Why did I keep these letters? Why? They're all neatly bundled up in thin folders, tied with pink tape, 1949, 1950, 1951, and on and on. I was trained to be a secretary. Maybe I felt that letters ought to be filed, and I'm sure I thought they would be interesting one day. In fact, they aren't very interesting in themselves. For example, about this time, just before the turn of the half-century, a bookshop wrote to ask for their money or they would take further steps. I owed money to bookshops in those days. Some were more lenient than others. I remember at the time thinking the letter about the further steps quite funny and worth keeping. Perhaps I wrote and told them that I was quite terrified of their steps approaching further, nearer, nearer. Perhaps I didn't actually write this, but only considered doing so. Apparently I paid them in the end, for the final receipt is there, five pounds eight and ninepence. I always desired books. Nearly all of my bills were for books. I possessed one very rare book, which I traded for part of my bill with another bookshop, but I wasn't a bibliophile of any kind. Rare books didn't interest me for their rarity, but for their content. I borrowed frequently from the public library, but often I would go into a bookshop, and in my longing to possess, let us say, the collected poems of Arthur Hugh Clough and a new collected Chaucer, I would get into conversation with the bookseller and run up a bill. Dear Fleur, I think I've found a job for you. I wrote off to the address in Northumberland, setting forth my merits as a secretary. Within a week I got on a bus to go and be interviewed by my new employer at the Berkeley Hotel. It was six in the evening. I'd allowed for the rush hour and arrived early. He was earlier still, and when I went to the desk to ask for him, he rose from a nearby chair and came over to me. He was slight, nearly tall, with white hair, a thin face with high cheekbones, which were pink-flushed, although otherwise his face was pale. His right shoulder seemed to protrude further than the left, as if fixed in the position for shaking hands, so that his general look was very slightly askew. He had an air which said, I am distinguished, name, Sir Quentin Oliver. We sat at a table drinking dry sherry, he said, Fleur Torbert, are you half French? No, Fleur was just a name my mother fancied. Ah, interesting. Well, now, yes, let me explain about the undertaking. The wages he offered were of 1936 vintage, and this was 1949, modern times. But I pushed up the starting price a little, and took the job for its promise of a totally new experience. Fleur Talbot, he had said, sitting there in the Barclay. Any connection with the Talbots of Talbot Grange? The Honourable Martin Talbot, know who I mean? I said, no. No relation to them. Of course, there are the Talbots of Finlay's refineries, those sugar people. She's a great friend of mine, lovely creature. Too good for him, if you ask my opinion. Sir Quentin Oliver's London flat was in Hallam Street, near Portland Place. There I went to my job from nine in the morning till five-thirty in the afternoon, passing the BBC edifice, where I always hoped to get a job but never succeeded. 
At Hallam Street every morning, the door would be opened by Mrs. Timms, the housekeeper. The first morning, Sir Quentin introduced her to me as a burial Mrs. Timms, which she, in a top people's accent, corrected to Mrs. Burial Timms. And while I stood waiting with my coat on, they had an altercation over this, he maintaining politely that before her divorce she had been Mrs. Thomas Timms, and now she was, to be precise, Beryl Mrs. Timms, but in no circumstances was Mrs. Beryl Timms accepted usage. Mrs. Timms then announced she could produce her national insurance card, her ration book and her identity card to prove that her name was Mrs. Beryl Timms. Sir Quentin held that the clerks employed in the ministries which issued these documents were ill-informed. Later, he said, he would show her what he meant under correct forms of address in one of his reference books. After that, he turned to me. "'I hope you're not argumentative,' he said. "'An argumentative woman is like water coming through the roof. It says so in the Holy Scriptures, either Proverbs or Ecclesiastes, I forget which. I hope you don't talk too much.' "'I talk very little.' I said, which was true, although I listened a lot, because I had a novel, my first, in lava. I took off my coat and handed it somewhat snootily to the refined Mrs. Timms, who took it away roughly and stalked off, hammering the parquet floor with her heels. As she went, she looked contemptuously at the coat, which was a cheap type known then as utility. Utility was at that time the people's garment, recognisable by the label with its motif of overlapping quarter moons. Many of the rich who could afford to spend clothing coupons on non-utility at Dorville, Jackmar, or Saville Row still chose to buy utility, bestowing upon it, I noticed, the inevitable phrase, perfectly all right. I've always been on the listen-in for those sorts of phrases. But perfectly all right was not what Beryl Timms thought of my coat. I followed Sir Quentin into the library. "'Come into my parlour,' said the spider to the fly." said Sir Quentin. I acknowledged his witticism with the smug smile which I felt was part of my job. In the interview at the Barclay, he told me the work was to be of a literary nature. We are a group, a group I may add of some distinction. Your function will be highly interesting, although, of course, on you will depend the efficiency and typewriting, how I hate that word, stenography, so American, and, of course, the stationery cupboard is dreadfully untidy at the moment and will need seeing to. You will have your work cut out, Miss Talbot. I'd asked at the end of the interview if I could get some pay at the end of the first week, as I couldn't hold out for a whole month. He went aloof, a little hurt. Perhaps he suspected that I wanted to put the job on a week's trial— this was partly true, but my need for speedy pay was equally true. He had said, Oh, well, yes, of course, if it's a case of hardship, as one might say a case of seasickness. In the meantime, I'd wondered why he'd called the interview at a London hotel instead of at the flat where I was to work. Now that I was actually in the flat, he answered that question himself. "'It isn't everybody, Miss Talbot, whom I invite to enter my home.' "'I replied agreeably that we all felt like that, "'and I cast my eyes round the room. "'I couldn't see the books. They were all behind glass. "'But Sir Quentin was not satisfied with my we all feel like that. "'It put us on an equal footing,' he said about making plain that I had missed the point. "'What I mean,' he said, 
is that here we have formed a very special circle for a very delicate purpose. The work is top secret. I want you to remember that. I interviewed six young ladies, and I have chosen you, Miss Talbot. I want you to remember that. By this time he was seated at his very splendid desk, leaning back in his chair, eyes half-closed with his hands held before him at chest level, the fingertips of each hand touching the other. I sat at the opposite side of the desk. He waved towards a large antique cabinet. "'In there,' he said, "'are secrets.' I wasn't alarmed, for although he was plainly some sort of crank, and it struck me, of course, that he might be up to no good, there was nothing in his voice or manner that I felt as an immediate personal menace. But I was on the alert, in fact excited. The novel I was writing, my first, Warrender Chase, was really filling my whole life at that time. I was finding it extraordinary how, throughout all the period I'd been working on the novel, right from chapter one, Characters and situations, images and phrases that I absolutely needed for the book, simply appeared as if from nowhere into my range of perception. I was a magnet for experiences that I needed. Not that I reproduced them photographically and literally. I didn't for a moment think of portraying Sir Quentin as he was. What gave me great happiness was his gift to me of the fingertips of his hands touching each other and nestling among the words as he waved towards the cabinet. "'In there are secrets.' "'The pulsating notion of how much he wanted to impress, "'how greatly he desired to believe in himself. "'And I might have left the job then and there, "'and never seen or thought of him again, "'but carried away with me those two items and more. "'I felt like the walnut cabinet itself "'towards which he was waving. "'In here are secrets,' said my mind.